0: Is evidence-based literature the be-all, end-all of clinical practice, or should we be incorporating other information? Can TXA stop bleeding from anything? Does vitamin C help anything? Stay tuned and find out. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs Cycle. Talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So, if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data, peer reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today so you can focus on building your product, growing your network and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Dr. Ken Milne, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So I am a huge fan of your podcast. So, I mean, that's why your audio and video are so good, right? You are a veteran podcaster. You have like 400 episodes of the SGM podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, which I love it. I love skeptics, Not skeptics that are like, oh, I think I'm bucking the trend and I know better than everybody. But people are like, what does the evidence really say? You know, critical appraisals, as you put it. So, you know, I really, really love what you're doing there.
1: Well, thank you for the kind words. I like being nerdy.
0: (laughs) And there's even a segment of your podcast, Talk Nerdy to Me.
1: Oh, I love talking (laughs) nerdy.
0: And actually, that's one of the things I love about the podcast. I don't know how you come up with a musical reference in every single title. Every Every single one.
1: I have a problem. I'm stuck in the 80s. (laughs) Now, sometimes I do drift off into other decades, but primarily I'm just stuck in the 80s.
0: You're currently a staff physician at Strathroy Middlesex General Hospital in Ontario, Canada. You couldn't tell by the accent, and you're an associate professor there in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Family Medicine at at the medical school there. You somehow also find the time to podcast. And in the podcast, you are appraising data. So you're doing literature reviews.
1: I mean, I like to stay up on the literature. And this is one way I can stay up in the literature, but also share that knowledge with a wider audience using that philosophy of free, open access to medical education, where we share our intellectual capital and hopefully the nerdiness with the world. And I'm not one of those skeptics that is a denialist or a nihilist. I like to think of myself as a positive skeptic. And I'm certainly not trying to tell people how to practice medicine. That's not what I do. I want to teach them how to think about what they're reading and how to incorporate what they're reading into their practice, whether they should or shouldn't be, is up to them.
0: Yeah. Doing what we've always done is the worst reason to do everything. So can you find data that tells you that you've been doing the right thing or you should be doing things a little differently?
1: We should be lifelong learners, right? Our education doesn't stop when we uh, walk out of medical school or walk out of residency. In fact, I think I, I learned more in my first year of practice, like real medicine, than I did throughout all my training, because all of a sudden it was all on you and that made it very personal and that you wanted to get it right. So it wasn't just about passing a test or an exam or something like that. It was about the patient. So I learned a lot after I finished my formal training.
0: Yeah. Those first couple of years of practice, they're tough. Then you hit your stride and you're uh, continue learning. But yeah, it's not the same. One of the things that you talk about on your intro to the show is shortening the duration it takes from new information to integrate into clinical practice. And so I remember, I think it was like vitamin C. When they discovered that vitamin C or citrus fruits rather, it was like an English scientist. It was like a ship captain. Took like 200 years to get the fact that citrus fruits can prevent scurvy to actually make it to the point where they routinely carried citrus fruits on boats so that sailors wouldn't get scurvy. And so we still have that problem where we have new information, and then it takes time for it to actually integrate into clinical practice.
1: We are doing a little bit better than taking centuries. We're down to decades. Ooh, good for us. In the age of social media, knowledge translation takes more than 10 years. That's what I usually say in the show. There's a Really famous paper that came out, well, twelve years ago. Twelve years ago, so we're almost there because it said, How long does it take high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside? That was the question in the paper, and the answer was 17 years. Now, it wasn't for a hundred percent of the information. That was only for fourteen percent of the information to reach the patient's bedside. I don't know how long you've been out of practice, but if you've been out of practice for 17 years, you're now starting to incorporate that 14%, perhaps, that you were taught 17 years ago. Oh, big ug.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Big ug. Okay. When you're evaluating the studies on your show, that's how the show goes, right? There's like a clinical question and you evaluate a paper to determine its validity and whether we should be using this paper to change how we manage patients, right? And so you have a checklist that you go to where you evaluate the validity of each study. So let's just go through what's on the checklist. Sure. Yeah. I'm
1: happy to go through the checklist. What we're trying to do though, is to shorten that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. You know, just to get to your question though, we do start each week on a Friday where I tease the audience with the PubMed reference And then I challenge the audience to come up with the 80s song that I'll try to sing. And just because I can't sing, doesn't mean I won't sing. And so that's how really the show starts. But then we do a critical appraisal of a recent publication. And we set the table by giving them a clinical case so we can get our head around it. We do a little background information, but it's not a systematic review. It's just setting the table. And then boom, we get get the question, and then we have the paper. And we want to go through a critical checklist to say, probe that paper for its validity. And we've customized it to emergency medicine, but it was adopted from Oxford, from the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, and their checklists. You know, the first question of a randomized control trial is, are these the patients that you treat? So, you know, you could be an internal medicine, OB guy, you could be a general surgeon, orthopedic surgeon. The first question is, hey, are these the patients that I see and treat? Is this a relevant cohort? And then it goes on from there. Now, it has my second favorite number of questions. My first and favorite number is five. I love the number five. I don't know why. I can count to it on one hand. But My second favorite number is 11 because this checklist goes to 11. When you just need one more question to push it over the top. Oh, we've got that covered. It goes to 11. Yeah. And so we just go through yes, that. Yes. And I got answers, the spinal tap reference. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And the answers can be yes. You know, yes, these are the patients. Yes, they were properly randomized. Yes, the randomization process was blinded. Yes, all the participants were blinded. You know, did they analyze the groups into which they were randomized? I don't want to get into the weeds of the checklist, but we just go through this checklist and the answers are yes, no, and I don't know. I'm unsure. I can't tell from the data that was provided in the paper. And boy, you do this over and over again. Like you said, I've done like 400 plus episodes now. You do this over and over again. You can pick up a paper and get pretty quick about going, oh, is this past the old
0: sniff test? But is the evidence only available in the literature, right? If you're practicing evidence-based medicine, does everything you need to do be based on you've got to be able to you know, cite the study where it influenced your decision-making?
1: No. And let's do some dogma lysis here. No, the answer is no. Dogma lysis here. David Sackett set up this whole concept, this modern revolution, because, you know, people have been doing evidence-based medicine for a long time, but he had this modern sort of renaissance of it in the early nineties. And he said that evidence-based medicine isn't just about the literature. It's one of the three pillars. The literature, it should guide our care. It should inform our care, but it shouldn't dictate our care. And the other two pillars are super important. You're a clinician. If you're a clinician and you've got clinical experience, you're bringing something to the table. That's an important pillar. And we don't want to dismiss that. Clinical judgment, clinical gestalt, and also because it's taking place in a context, what resources do you have? What's your patient population like? That kind of stuff. So clinical judgment is the second pillar. And then the third pillar is we are all unique, just like everyone else. And so every patient will have their own values and preferences. And I always say that the best way to figure out what a patient values and prefers, and I'm just spitballing here because, you know, we don't have a script. We're just doing it. We're having a chat, you and me. Ask the patient. You'll be really impressed. I think once you start doing that, say, hey, what would you like to do? Do some shared decision making. Because the literature very rarely says, thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that. It's sort of like, eh, we've got some numbers here. You know, we got some potential benefit. There's some potential harm. I've got my clinical judgment that I can bring to the table. I'm only an expert at the medicine and the literature, but the patient is an expert at themselves and their own personal journey and what they care about. So just ask them, what do you care about? Like, do you want to go on this drug?
0: Yeah. I find that that's really useful when we're deciding whether to resuscitate with normal saline or lactated ringers. I find that the patients, a lot of them have really strong preference on that.
1: Well, there's times for shared decision making and there's times for staying alive, staying alive. Oh, oh. That's the uh, CPR song, unless you're a nihilist and it's another one bites the dust because we know what the real numbers are. Yeah. Too dark, too dark. I could say they're only mostly dead. Do you know where that comes from?
0: Favorite movie of all time and
1: amazing book. How could it not be everyone's favorite movie? It would be inconceivable.
0: My wife is tired of me saying, well, I wouldn't be a summer home here, but the trees are actually quite lovely.
1: (laughs) What I tell my wife always, when she asks me to do something, I say, as you wish.
0: Actually, the values is something that I'll sometimes say to my patients when they ask me, well, what would you do if it was you? Or what would you do if this was your kid? And what I'll say is the problem is like we bring our own values into the decision making. And that's like telling someone who to vote for. And listen, I would love to tell you who to vote for because I think I'm right 100% of the time on who to vote for. But that doesn't you know, incorporate a lot of this. And if you were in the room next door seeing one of my partners, you might get a different answer to that question. So like I can tell you, I can make an argument when it's shades of gray. And that often happens. Like for me, ear tubes, ear infections, like Oh my God, I don't want my kid having another antibiotic. Okay, okay, we'll do tubes. As opposed to you're going to give them anesthesia and you're going to poke holes in their eardrums. Oh my God. Okay, fine. Then we won't do tubes just now. We'll wait a little longer, see how things go. Maybe they'll need a couple more rounds of antibiotics for ear infections.
1: There's this huge room for this nuance and this discussion and preferences. Like you said, you know, like I see parents, and I often will do this with their children and say, you know, I'm not going to assume you want antibiotics for that otitis media. I'm not going to assume you don't want the antibiotics. I can tell you what the numbers are. You know, your child and you can have this. Oh my God. Every time Susie gets, you know, an antibiotic, she gets explosive diarrhea. Do we really have to go on antibiotics? And I'll say, actually, no, you don't you know, the vast majority will resolve on their own in two to three days if they're over the age of two and blah, 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 right? They say, oh my God, we're leaving for Mexico. We don't want her to be sick down there. You go, okay, that's reasonable too, right?
0: Right. You want to have explosive diarrhea in Mexico? In Mexico I mean, with the rest of the family,
1: but for other reasons, not antibiotic associated.
0: Yes. There are a lot of shades of gray, but there have to be things out there that you've learned from your experience and from your podcast that you sometimes see other clinicians doing where you're just like, man, I really want to like grab their phone, put this episode on their playlist so that they're, when they're driving home, they hear what the evidence is. So there's got to be something. So I want to talk about that from two different perspectives. One is what you'd like to share with your EM colleagues, you know, because EM is such a hub and you basically practice all of our specialties to some degree. A lot of what you cover translates to other specialties as well. So first, let's start with just your colleagues. Like, What are the things that you're sometimes seeing other EM physicians doing where you're like, oh, there's like a lot of evidence out there that says that you should be doing X and not Y?
1: Well, actually, I don't find myself in that position too often because there's not a lot of good evidence out there to say thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that. Come
0: on. uh, I know, but I- Come on, get some-
1: The road of practice of medicine is very wide, and you don't get into the ditch very often. Obviously, you don't want other physicians, if you see them, doing something that's obviously wrong and going to cause harm. Okay, yeah, they got a potassium of 7.5. Let's not push the potassium. But you know, most of it is really wide, and we shouldn't be wagging our fingers at each other. And most of the time, actually, I take the brunt of it when other physicians come to me And say, I can't believe you didn't do X or you didn't give drug Y. That's more likely. I'm not usually in their face saying, I can't believe you're giving this medicine or not giving this medicine. You know, like let's take buckle fractures in children. Traditionally in North America, we've been casting those. And traditionally in the UK, they're like, really? Can't you just put a soft wrap on that? Yes, you can. And all the kids turn out pretty much fine. And we don't know the denominator of how many kids fell and got a buckle fracture, and their parents never brought them to the emergency department to get an x ray.
0: Sorry, when you say buckle to an otolaryngologist, it makes me think B U C C A L, they fractured their cheek.
1: So we'll call it a green stick. Why don't we call it a green okay. stick? There is a difference between the two, but they've got a little green stick fracture, which is slightly different than a buckle fracture. We know that most of those kids who don't come in are children of physicians and healthcare workers. (laughs) Our parents never took us to the hospital for that kind of stuff. We don't know the denominator and these kids turn out fine and a whole nation over in Europe is not treating it the same way we're doing it. So we get very cultural and very tribal in our treatments. You know, like I've had physicians go, I can't believe you didn't cast that kid. And then I'll go, well, you know, there's some work over the last 20 years. I nudge them and I'll say, hey, I've done a show or two on this. You can take a look at the paper or you can just turn your car into a classroom and listen to the podcast on the way home. And then you'll understand why I didn't choose to. And it's usually not my choice. It's usually a shared decision-making with the parent saying, hey, is Sally super active or going to summer camp and she needs more protection? What's Sally like? Like just Ask the parent, or if they're like, oh my goodness, no, uh, Sally will turn that cast into a weapon. No, just a soft (laughs) rap. Thank you very much. You know, so it's again, you know, with all of these EBM questions, my answer is it all depends. And it usually does all depend. There's not one thing that says triggers it like a dichotomy that you go this way or that way. It's sort of like, meh, it's a decision that you talk about. But the second half of that question was about, what do I do? And if I see, you know, other physicians doing certain things, well, you know, my clinical practice, you know, they'll see me practicing a certain way. So that's an influencer. I'll nudge and, you know, my- Did you just call yourself an influencer? I will influence them. I'm on TikTok now as of January. I do a paper in a minute, go. And I summarize a whole paper, critically appraise it in one minute and the clock runs and I do it and I bang it out with each of my episodes You
0: don't don't speed up the speech. So you're like the micro machine man.
1: No, I do talk fast though, but I don't speed it up. I just try to hit that minute mark on each wow. episode. You know, physicians have big egos. Oh, good, you're sitting down. Hopefully, everybody's not driving their car right now listening to this. They could just drive right so off the road.
0: Surprised, yeah.
1: But physicians can have big egos, and you know, if you take the full frontal, "Hey, you idiot! I can't believe you're doing this." Approach. They might just dig in, double down, and all that stuff.
0: You know what? We're psychological all psychological reactants. Psychological yeah. reactions. People, if you tell them what to do, are more likely, even if they were going to do that thing, now they're less likely to actually do it because you took away their autonomy and told them what to do. You got a side
1: Yeah. I want them to have agency and autonomy, just like when I'm interacting with patients who I consider they are an expert in their journey. Physicians that I work with are also experts and they have their own personal experience and their clinical experience. And so if they're doing something different, I usually ask them, hey- I saw you did this. You gave this drug. That's interesting. What informs your practice on that? I'd like to learn, like why? And that usually, it cracks the door open sometimes for a better discussion, a more collegial discussion. And often when we drill down to the primary literature, we go, holy crap, we're standing on pillars of salt and sand here, Ken. We don't have much to go on either way. So that's why I'm sort of like, yeah, whatever.
0: That was a show a long time ago with uh, Natalie Martinek, who former microbiologist. And one of the things that she talked about was if you're going to be, you know, because medicine is so hierarchical that if you see, like, if you're a junior resident and you see the attending doing something, you're like, whoa, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, how can you insinuate yourself in this situation? And really the fact of the matter is, well, if you're a junior resident it's an attending, they have a lot more experience and maybe there's something that you're not familiar with, or maybe they're doing something they you know, they could be doing better. And so the best way to go about it is exactly how you said it. You say, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on. I, you know, in my head, I was thinking that you were going to do this, but you're doing this. Help me, you know, get to that same page as you.
1: Help me understand. Yeah. Help me understand. And I've seen other people do it differently. I wonder why that is. There's three, three words. Um, a friend of mine, she runs a great website called Thinking is Power. And she says, be curious. So why are you doing that? What's informing your care? Be skeptical. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting, but I'd like to know more. I'd like to have better evidence before I, you know, just because Ken said so is the lowest form of evidence, right? That's expert opinion. That's the lowest form of evidence. And our patients deserve care based on the best evidence. Sometimes that's all we have is expert opinion, but be curious, be skeptical, and be humble.
0: Which is interesting because that's, if there's a malpractice suit against us, Expert opinion, which is the lowest form of evidence, is what's used. Like that's for legal evidence. Yes, for legal evidence. Exactly. Exactly. So, which is um, different
1: than clinic. I practice medicine, not law. So,
0: yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, I want to dig into some. Oh, you want to push, don't you? That you've discovered through doing your podcast and reviewing the literature that maybe you've changed about your own practice.
1: Sure. Probably in the last 10 years, the biggest thing. That's had a you know a big popular impact in emergency medicine is tranexamic acid TXA. It is like the duct tape of emergency medicine. If you're bleeding, we're giving you TXA, and they've tried it for so many different things. You're an otolaryngologist. I mean nosebleeds. That's you know. There's right. been tons I just listened th-
0: to that episode that you did on it.
1: Yeah, and that's what we just did an episode on that. Oh, yeah, okay. great song by the way for that episode. You know, it was being used for. Intercranial hemorrhage, isolated traumatic brain injuries, general trauma, postpartum hemorrhage, nosebleeds, GI bleeds. I mean, if you're bleeding, give it. You know, what's the harm? Like came the up?
0: Frank's red hot of bleeding.
1: Ugh. And it's just like, you know, that I hear that a lot. What's the harm? And it's cheap. And you know what we should figure out first is does it work? Then we can have the conversation of what's the harm? Because if something's biologically active in the body, it has potential benefit. In other words, it's not going to help everybody, right? There's not a number needed to treat of one, right? And what's the potential harm? And it's not one for harming either. So where does that balance come out in the number needed to treat when you're doing something like giving a biological agent? And then once we've decided, okay, we've got something that's effective, it has a clinically important patient-oriented outcome, or what I like to call a poo. So it has a poo. It's all dad jokes and bathroom humor. So it has a poo. Now, does that poo, is it a net benefit? You know, because if you're killing more people than you're actually helping, that's not considered a win. And we can talk about that because there are some studies that try to spin it that way. And then how much does it cost? Can we afford it? Is it worth it? What's, you know, like if it costs pennies, that's one thing. But if it costs tens of thousands of dollars, and we're seeing that with the new Alzheimer's drugs that are being proposed and stuff like that, you know, they've got surrogate markers, it decreases beta amyloid, but, you know, it causes significant brain swelling and it costs tens of thousands of dollars a year. And does it have a patient oriented outcome? Well, we think that if the beta amyloid is less, they'll be better, but we never tested, are they better with their Alzheimer's? So, you know, first figure out if it works. Then you can start talking to me about what's the harm. And then you can start talking to me about, hey, how much does it cost? That bothers so, me about.
0: So TXA, are you TXA. using it in your clinical practice? Not routinely. I mean, so cheap, right now? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: not, not routinely. And my answer would be, it all depends. So if I have a polytrauma patient, the best evidence we have is from crash two that shows a 1.5% absolute mortality benefit. But for all these other conditions, let's let's pick something that you and I may not be experts at. You know, you, you work above the clavicles. I've got a lot of breadth, but I don't have a lot of depth as an emergency physician, I always say. Let's pick postpartum hemorrhage, the wheelhouse of obstetricians and gynecologists, family physicians, and occasionally when women pull up in a taxi cab crowning in the emergency department. That's when I deliver babies. So they get a postpartum hemorrhage. There was this huge trial called the woman's trial, 20,000 patients trying to answer the question, will TXA, tranexamic acid, if you have postpartum hemorrhage, does it have a patient-oriented outcome of benefit? And they had a composite outcome. So they made the target a little bit bigger. They said mortality, which is a very objective outcome, they can't be mostly dead, right? They're either dead or alive. It's very dichotomous. And, th- yeah. And then they had a, you know, a more subjective outcome. Am I going to perform a hysterectomy? Right. And that's clinically, that's the clinician sort of. Okay. What's going on? How much blood loss? What do the vitals look like? There's a lot of things that come into, am I going to do a hysterectomy? And when they did that study and they compared TXA to placebo, wah, wah, wah. No significant difference between the two groups. Now, you pull those apart, all-cause mortality, TXA, all-cause mortality, placebo, no difference. Same thing with the hysterectomy. But if you looked at the number of women who had postpartum hemorrhage and their mortality was due to bleeding, that was statistically less in TXA. How do we put that together? Now, that's a subgroup analysis, right? It's not the, It wasn't the primary outcome. It was a subgroup of patients. So that means if the overall mortality is no different, the ones who died of bleeding was less, that means the other women must have died of something else, maybe harm from the TXA or something else, because we know that there was no difference in all-cause mortality. And I think that that's what patients are more concerned about. It's like, hey, good news. You didn't die from bleeding, but you're dead. Okay, or I get, get it. Someone
0: that news, right?
1: Yeah, you're you dead. know, like, but people yeah. can overinterpret those yeah. kinds of studies and say, see, we should give it because in this subgroup, it showed a statistically significant benefit. It's cheap, easy to give. And what's the harm? And the harm is, we don't know that it works. The overall mortality is the same, right? And so should we be spending our time and effort and any cognitive load, and it's easy to give TXA, but cognitive load and any dollars into something that hasn't been demonstrated to work? And they've actually taken, there's a study where they said, okay, let's look at the abstract of papers and say, in that abstract, did they highlight a secondary outcome? Some subgroup or something like that. Ooh, this is interesting, right? And they found that in, because it should be hypothesis generating, when they looked at that in that study, how many of those papers went on and said, okay, that's an interesting finding. That's an interesting subgroup. Less women died of bleeding in this TXA study of postpartum hemorrhage. Let's go on and do a properly powered study with the right methods to figure out is that true? Do you want to hazard to guess how many times in percentages? Do you think it was over 50% of those things were tracked down or less than 50%?
0: I know the answer because I listened to your show. (laughs) It was zero.
1: No, 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 no. It was 10%. It was was 10%. Sorry. So, But you're getting there. You've just spilled the candy dish. So it was 10% were actually looked into. And then when they were looked into it, how many were confirmed? And yes, it was a nice round number the big goose egg zero so i see these wait that
0: seems that's that seems really unlikely so what you're saying is like sometimes you'll do these studies right and after the study's done you will go to look for trends in subgroups to see if any of them need to be examined and so if you do find something that's statistically significant there's a there's a chance to be redundant that it was statistically significant by chance right so if you but if you do enough of these, it seems like you'll eventually repeat the study on the subgroup and determine that it wasn't by chance. How is it that it was ne- it was always by chance with like none of these studies ever confirming that the subgroup analysis actually found something? Like you would think that someone would have found something somewhere.
1: So if you're thinking, you know, statistically, and, you know, I don't like to get into the P values because it will be turning people off. But if they only did 10%, why would you find a difference? Yeah, I know exactly. It's like, oh, God, these guys are – don't pee all over this podcast. So, no, um, they only did 10%, right? They only did 10%. And when they did that 10%, they didn't find it. That doesn't mean none of the other subgroups aren't true, of course, because I then I would be making a positive claim and I would have to support that. We just don't have evidence that it they are true. And so this is an important point in epistemology. So how do we know what we know? Well, we know that if you have a hypothesis, you have the burden of proof to demonstrate if you're making the claim that this worked in this subgroup. So in this case, postpartum hemorrhage, less women died of bleeding. Same number of women died overall, but less women died of postpartum of bleeding because we gave them TXA. Great. Then test that. Figure that out. Right? Like prop, because the study wasn't powered for that. And you can see how maybe filling out the death certificate, which we know is problematic, and you're using that as the cause of death, filling it, let's say you gave TXA and the woman died. Are you going to say it's because TXA didn't work? No, something else must have happened. If they lived, it's because the TXA worked. Right? And so there's stuff, there's these biases baked in to the way we do research and the way we interpret research. And this is why, Like if you listen to my show over and over and over again, it doesn't matter about the content. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about postpartum hemorrhage. It doesn't matter if we're talking about pediatric otitis media. It doesn't matter. What matters is you get those concepts, that understanding of how to think and how to approach the literature and how to be a critical thinker and skeptical of the literature so you know how to apply it. Because you can't just read the abstract, right? You can't just read the abstract, I know, and get the quote-unquote truth.
0: So let's talk about one more thing that seems to keep coming up, okay? Vitamin C. What is the obsession with vitamin C, right? Like Linus Pauling won two Nobel Prizes, right? One for chemistry, I think, and one for peace. He was the only person to ever win it by himself for two different subjects, right? I think, or Marie Curie also. Woman, yeah, she was the first. (laughs) So one of two people. And at the end of his career, right, mega doses of vitamins are good for your health. Vitamin C in particular. And so vitamin C has insinuated itself into our culture.
1: What did Linus Pauling not win a Nobel for? Vitamin C. That's where we get that idea of the Nobel effect. And I see this in physicians and I try to mitigate myself from being like this. Physicians are very smart, highly intelligent, driven, caring individuals. But just because you read a lot of books, and you got through that process of getting through medical school and that residency period and that sleep deprivation and crammed all that information into your head, doesn't mean you're smart about anything else. I go to the Apple store. I am not the genius in the room, okay? You know, I'm like, just make all my stuff sink, okay? Because I don't know how to do it, right? And so we see physicians, and this is the Nobel effect, that just because they're experts in one area, and we respect them for that, right? And it's not about staying in your lane. It doesn't mean you can't be an expert in another area, but you got
0: to put in the work usually, yeah. right? Automatically. And, you know, so, it's so- just
1: not like you have an MD, therefore you can have all these political views that are correct, except for you, of course.
0: I right, Yes, I do. We'll get to that eventually in another episode and all of my correct political views. But vitamin C, right? I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, and I won't mention the pandemic because then I get somehow blocked from being able to promote the episode or something. There was a hospital near me that was seeing if vitamin C improved outcomes in those patients. And you had a recent episode on vitamin C for sepsis patients. And it's all because of Linus Pauling, right? And so that we're just like obsessed with vitamin C. Have you reviewed any papers in your 400 episodes? That have shown, and that wasn't the only vitamin C episode, correct? Like you've covered this before.
1: Yeah, we've done four or five episodes, I think, on vitamin C.
0: Anything, anything that it shows a benefit other than scurvy.
1: Yes. You ready for it? let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. So the vitamin C in sepsis got kicked off or like kickstarted because Dr. Paul Merrick said that high-dose vitamin C cocktail of thymine, vitamin C, and hydrocortisone could cure sepsis. His evidence for the claim was a before and after study done at his own institution. So this is not blinded. They had a before study where they didn't give these patients this cocktail. And then after a certain date, they gave this cocktail and it was limited numbers. I can't remember if it was like 50 people in each group, but it was small-ish, right? And he showed a significant mortality benefit. So we did that show and we were highly skeptical of the conclusions that vitamin C was actually having the effect because it is not a randomized control trial. It is a before and after observational study. So you can say there is an association between vitamin C or this vitamin C cocktail and improved mortality in sepsis patients. And so you can say, well, that's interesting. That's hypothesis generating. Now demonstrate that it's actually causative because, you know, we don't want to mix up association and causation. So that was, I think that was like episode 174. And I got like a dozen skeptics to each comment on why this is, we should be very skeptical about this. And then over the next three or four years, three, four studies that were properly designed, randomized control trials came out and said, it's a nothing burger.
0: Wait, I thought you were going to tell me about an episode in which vitamin C actually does something.
1: That was Merrick's episode. That okay. was his study. Okay. That, okay. But just okay. be just so because it's you out read there, it there,
0: but doesn't yeah, mean be, it's true. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay.
1: just because you read it, just because it was published, doesn't mean it's true. It means there is a study. It was peer reviewed, and that's what it means. But post-publication peer review is a fundamental aspect of science. Science needs to be falsifiable if you follow Karl Popper's philosophy. So part of you know me, I've been doing research for forty years. When you publish something, you put it out there. I want to be questioned. I want my information to be probed and tested for its validity. Where did I get it wrong? Where did I get it right? What's going on? Challenge me. Ask questions. That's how we improve iteratively in science.
0: In everything. I mean, this is what I'm working on with my kids right now. I've got three little kids. They're super competitive. They hate losing. But listen, if you don't lose, you're not going to get better. Losing is where you get better. Finding out what you did wrong is then going to help you do it even better next time. And isn't that the goal? Is the goal to be able to just have people clap you on the back and tell you how amazing you are? I mean, yes, kind of, right? That would be nice if it happened a little more often. When I'm teaching residents, I'm talking
1: about we learn at the edges of our comfort zone, right? And there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm I'm not sure about and I'm unsure about, and that drives me to want to know about that. So I want to know what is the quote unquote truth? What is the best point estimate of an observed effect size? Does it work?
0: Amazing. Amazing. So, I mean, there's tons. These episodes, they go super fast because, I mean, you cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. And of course, you make it fun and you make it funny because of the pop culture references and 80s references and Marvel and DC, you know, superhero references is great. So I'm a big fan if some of my listeners are also, you know, want to become big fans, where can they find you and where can they find the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine?
1: If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's the SGEM. And if you want to check out the website, it's the com, And if you want to email me, it's the SGEM at gmail.com. So it's T H E. So I couldn't use just SGEM because I think that's the Society of Gemology or something like that. So it had to be. The S Gem. It's sort of like how originally it was the Facebook, and then it just become Facebook. Mine is still the S Gem. And we and oh, at the end of every episode, if you listen, at the end of every episode, there's a trivia contest for the Keeners out there, the Gunners in the United States, but uh, Keeners, gunners, yes, Gunners in the United States, but Keeners in Canada. And so, so America, if you, we
0: have to make everything about guns, right?
1: America. So if you answer the question correctly first. I will mail anywhere in the world, and these prizes have gone around the globe, a cool skeptical prize. And people always ask me, Ken, what is the cool skeptical prize? And my answer is, you got to play to win and you got to win to find out.
0: Amazing. Well, this is the Brad and the Ken <laughs> from VSGM and The Physician's Guide to Doctoring, logging off. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested. Or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at Doctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.